we will be looking at Psalm 76, a psalm as we will see, which is a song of victory to the Lord. It is a psalm of Asaph, a skilled Levite singer and poet who King David assigned as a worship leader in the Tabernacle Choir. Ancient tradition ties this psalm to what is seen as the second most significant redemptive event in the entire Old Testament, second only to the Exodus. The battle described here was God's defeat of the Assyrians under Sennacherib, where 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were slain by God's angel. We will see its extensive use of military metaphors, And we'll see that this psalm fits in this section of the Psalter that depicts deep, ongoing community distress. The psalm celebrates a protective warrior's presence, one who achieves victory over an assault on the city of God, Jerusalem. I'll invite you to look this psalm up in your Bibles and read along as I read aloud. Psalm 76, to the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse, lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you'd open our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit to understand and apply these truths that are laid out before us in Psalm 76. We thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I'm sure many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's classic work, the Narnia series. In these stories, we follow four children who, upon discovering a kingdom through the back of a wardrobe, 
embark on a journey of discovery. In this kingdom, there are numerous fantastical characters. But the story, as most good stories are, is defined by the struggle between good and evil. The struggle is personified in the characters of the evil white witch in Aslan, a talking lion who is described as the king of beasts, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings of Narnia. He is the protector of this land. He's a rightful king destined to rule. When one of the four children falls prey to the evil influence of the white witch, a climactic negotiation takes place between her and Aslan as to how this evil influence may be broken and the child restored. The two are depicted as being deep in conversation, out of earshot of the crowds gathered. Ultimately, a settlement is agreed upon, yet no one is privy to the negotiation's outcome except the witch and Aslan himself. What is made known is that Aslan the lion is to be feared, as when the witch questions whether the lion will keep his unrevealed promise, he rises from his throne and lets out a roar that grows louder and louder until the white witch runs for her very life. Although at this point the resolution has not been revealed, we know beyond a doubt that Aslan is a figure of power, authority, dominion, and rule, all attributes, even to a greater degree, of the subject of our psalm before us today. We see immediately in verse 1 of our psalm that it is in Judah that God, described in the third person here, is known. This should immediately cause us to pause. Startling truth here that here we see described the creator God as, as having been revealed, an expression of intimate relation and deep connection. God, by his own volition, has chosen a particular spot to dwell and has chosen a particular people. His abode has been established in Salem and his dwelling place in Zion. These are both alternative names for Jerusalem, the place where the temple was established, allowing God's people to access God's presence through the sanctuary. It is here that God has allowed himself to be known. We are told that it is here that his name is great. There is no question of who is supreme in this relationship between the inhabitants of the land and its residing defender. Interestingly, in the original language, the terms abode and dwelling place also suggest the idea of a lair, or den, seeming to metaphorically depict the home of a fierce animal, possibly a lion, who has taken up protective duty of this holy city, resolved to defend its territory and its people with all its power and might. As we will see, this is appropriate, given the title uh, to the conquering Savior in Revelation 5, verse 5, that we'll discuss later. 
Concluding this section, verse 3 tells us that it is here that the weapons of war are destroyed, the flashing arrows, the shield, and sword. This protector is in control of this land, and now it is a place of peace, living up to the meaning of its name of Salem, as the instruments of war have been destroyed. This victory results in God's people now directly addressing this divine warrior in verse 4. He is described as glorious and majestic, words that depict him as radiant, shining forth with radiant light. He is more majestic than the mountains full of prey, which could either be speaking of the Lord coming down from the mountains that are full of prey ready to be hunted, or just comparing the glory of God as being that much greater in grandeur than the mountains themselves. Either way, upon the Lord's coming, the stout-hearted are stripped of their spoil and sink into the sleep of death. Despite the rebellious courage and strength, the men of war are unable to use their hands, a metaphor for them being utterly powerless. Both the horse and rider, usually the peak of strength on the battlefield at that time, are laid low in a decisive, stunning defeat. We're explicitly told in verse 6 that this is all the result of God's rebuke. As scholar Jim Hamilton notes, in Psalm 75, the Lord says he will judge, and in 76, he arrives on the scene to do it. God has come in judgment, and no human courage or physical strength or power of horses will be able to stand against him. With no way to escape, God's justice is comprehensively applied. The psalmist continues with what seems like the only appropriate response after what we have just read. But you, you are to be feared. Or otherwise strikingly translated, you, fearsome are you. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? The psalmist asks rhetorically, God's victory results in God being declared fearsome. While images of modern wars flash across our screens evoking horror and dread in the viewer, it is true that the world has never experienced nor will experience anything as intimidating or terrifying as when God comes in judgment. We then read in verse 8, that from the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was still. If we look back a few psalms to Psalm 74, in verse 22 we read, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. It seems the Lord is now answering that prayer and fulfilling the promise that he made in Psalm 75, verse 2 where it says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. A hush falls over the whole earth. A hush induced by an awful realization of guilt as mankind's rebellion against its creator is made unmistakably clear. It's a hush induced by the sheer power shown by the judge 
It's a hush induced by the righteous character of the judge himself, and it's a hush induced by the unquestionable purity of the wrath displayed. What is being described in this psalm, what awaits at the consummation of this age, is a display of power and might without equal. However, at the conclusion of this section, in verse 9, we are given a glimpse of an end goal of God arriving in judgment, namely, to save all the humble of the earth. This word humble in the original language here can also mean poor, afflicted, or meek. But the message is clear. The Lord is coming in judgment to save those who are his, for his glory. Those who are afflicted, poor, destitute, suffering. Throughout history, military might has been used to acquire land, materials, and peoples. God's dual purpose through his judgment is the destruction of his enemies and the deliverance of those who have been made righteous by faith. He's coming to save the humble of the earth. This isn't a modern war strategy. This will be the inauguration of a kingdom beyond all human destruction where all are cared for. It will be a kingdom where God is supreme and those who rebel will have met their destruction The sila we see at the end of this section prompts us to dwell on these truths. Our psalm concludes with a section that exhorts the whole community to honor our great God. It starts out with a seemingly cryptic statement. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. There's probably a sense in which the ancient meaning has been lost to the modern reader, but the writer seems to have the wrath of the wicked in view here. It seems that God's righteous defeat of the wicked... Oh, I'm back. It seems that God's righteous defeat of the wicked, this display of supreme power against even the most fearless, proud, and powerful of adversaries, will result in his glorious praise for the justice administered. He is able to overcome all, and thus the wrath of men praises God. As scholar Derek Kidner states, human evil may rage and rage, but its defiance and perversity simply throw into splendid relief God's power and glory, and therefore redound his praise. We read on that the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. There's a sense here that God will take all the wrathful of the earth and use them, to use an older expression, to gird up his loins. As one pastor says, as he prepares to set out on a task of judgment and salvation, it is work that uses the raging multitudes as nothing but implements that will facilitate his ability to accomplish his purposes. The concluding verses of our psalm call those who find themselves surrounding Yahweh to make and keep their vows to him. And it echoes the admonition found in Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, where it says, 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wealth, power, high standing, even royal descent will not benefit anyone finally in the judgment. And this makes God fearsome to the kings of the earth. This admonition to fear the Lord is featured four times in the last six verses of this psalm and is a key to understanding its theme. And indeed, we see here a theme of the entire scope of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 states, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We're also told in the book of Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. These are terms that are important to understand and apply. And yet the fear of God is a concept that has evoked some misunderstanding. This morning, I'd like to suggest that your understanding, interpretation, and personal application of this key term, fear of the Lord, will depend on your own current standing before God. This is to say that if you are in the wrong standing before God, the word fear will have different connotations for you. A person in wrong standing before God has much to fear about God. But it is a fear, according to the Bible, that should be more along the lines of dread, terror, trepidation, and foreboding. The word fear will and should have negative connotations, not because you haven't done enough good to earn God's favor, but because right standing cannot be earned. Right standing is achieved one way and one way only. And what we are talking about here is the gospel message. This is the message of good news for a world that was created good, including the human race, created in the image of God. But that race, our race, rebelled against its good creator. And so the world and humanity were bound under the influence of sin. The Bible tells us, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ Jesus, being the one and only Son of God, who took on full humanity, came down into the world. He lived and dwelt among real humans in a real time and in a real place. His time on earth included living a perfect human life that led to his willing death on the cross, and subsequent resurrection three days later. His was an atoning death that for those who put their trust in him, their sins and transgressions would be forgiven, that they might receive eternal life. Jesus Christ came to reconcile us to the Father. 
This is the good news of the gospel, news that will never stop being good. Pastor Ray Ortland states, God's final category for you is not your goodness versus your badness, but your union with Christ versus your distance from Christ. What matters most about you in God's sight is not the good or bad things you've done, but your trust in an openness to Christ, we would call this the fear of Christ, versus your self-trust and defensiveness toward Christ. Even a supposed neutral attitude toward God, one of apathy and indifference, betrays a condemning self-reliance. To rely on self-trust and defensiveness towards Christ is to evoke a righteous judgment. A judgment that, although might seem to be delayed, is coming swift and sure and will be as terrifying as what has been described in our psalm today. It's important to understand that God will not judge according to some arbitrary moral scale. He will judge in righteousness because he is righteous. I'm going to switch out mics here. Try this one. It's important to understand that God will not judge according to some arbitrary moral scale, but he will judge in righteousness because he is righteous. His perfect character and being cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. It is only through the sacrifice of Christ that we acquire his righteousness and stand before the Lord in spotless perfection. One day the Lord Jesus will come back, books will be opened, and accounts settled. Psalm 76 stands as a testament to this truth and serves as a call to repentance. It is a plea to seek mercy while mercy can be found from the one who will give freely. This mercy is found only in the saving work of Jesus Christ. To kiss the Son means to trust in him, to embrace his authority that his wrath might be averted. This is an offer being made to each of us here today. Isaiah 66 verse 2 tells us, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Does this describe you this morning? Seek forgiveness from God and experience his mercy. He will answer your prayer for salvation. Yet, there is another type of the fear of God that I've already hinted at that is sometimes evidenced among regular church attendees. There are those of us who live in a constant state of wanting to appease a God we think is always on the brink of giving up on us. As John Colhoun helpfully says, when someone is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath, 
revealed in the law and not drawn to him by the belief of his love revealed in the gospel, when they fear God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, when they regard God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when they contemplate God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, they show that they are under the dominion or at least under the prevalence of a legal spirit. This legal spirit, one of merit by works and not by faith alone, can only be countered by a true understanding of the gospel. That the Lord will save you to the uttermost when you put your trust in him and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Maybe some of us this morning need a reminder of this gospel truth. God is your compassionate friend and father. So in the biblical sense of the term, this is what it means to fear the Lord. To fear God is to appropriately respond to his self-revelation. It is to know who reigns in power, majesty, and might. And just as in Judah, God is known, as we're told at the beginning of the psalm today, God can be known here in London, Ontario in 2023. He has revealed himself to us through his word and his gospel. And as one pastor says, godly fear is really nothing other than to love God as God. We could describe this appropriate response as awe before God reverence for God, submission to God, or obedience to God. We who are in right standing before him, who have trusted in Christ as we fear him, stand in awe together as brothers and sisters, just as we are called children of God. Together, friends, we've been adopted into his family, not through any of our own doing, but as a gift of grace. This is our first application point this morning. Fear the Lord. It's an appropriate response to the knowledge of God. It's a call to respond to the gospel in a saving way by trusting in Christ. In the presence of such a display of profound power as described in our psalm today, the power possessed only by the Lord God on high, the only appropriate response is humility, submission, and godly fear. Friends, do you fear the Lord in this way? Now, in many ways, this is the same fear that is described of some of the characters in our Narnia series in the relation to Aslan the lion. There is an awe and reverence towards him. One conversation between these characters conveys this theme. In speaking of Aslan, one of the characters, Susan, asks, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
this King Aslan displaying his goodness in a seemingly allegorical action allows the sacrifice of himself by the white witch on what is known as the stone table to ensure the freedom of our captive character. He ultimately displays his goodness and power in profound ways. To discover for yourself what happens in the climactic events of the story, you might consider adding the Narnia series to your summer reading list. But this theme of self-sacrifice, of one character atoning for another, of the giving of a life that others might live, has been at the core of innumerable stories, books, movies, and TV shows over the centuries. It is a theme that resonates and is indeed rooted in the psyche of every human being. We gravitate towards the characters who display a self-sacrificial, humble attitude, especially in the presence of self-restricted power and constrained righteous wrath. Yet these character traits exhibited by Aslan the lion are truer in a much greater eternal sense in our Savior God. We believe the words of the Apostle John when he says that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We've seen that lived out to an astonishing degree in the life of Jesus Christ. It seems what really captures our imagination, what we really, truly, ultimately long for, is the final display of good triumphing over evil. A certain desire for righteousness and peace to reign draws us into those epic stories of this battle as evidenced by the deeply moving nature of these victories portrayed on screen. Aslan wasn't safe, and neither is our Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't safe in the sense that he will let evil go unpunished, but he is good. And that goodness will be manifested when one day he returns to judge the world as described in Revelation chapter 5. In these verses, we read of a weeping Apostle John as no one is found to be worthy to break the seals on the scroll. These scrolls represent redemptive history and God's plan for history, including saving human beings. If no one can be found to open the scrolls, then no one can be saved. Then one of the elders comes forth and declares, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Victory had been accomplished. This is a victory that we can celebrate now. This inevitable destruction of Satan and the final defeat of sin. This is a victory that can only be achieved by great power and majesty. And this is the power we, as we see ascribed to God in our psalm today. This is our second application point this morning. To celebrate the victory that will be displayed over sin and death. It is coming. But what does celebrating this victory look like now? 
At least part of the answer to this question pertains to what is known as the already not yet aspect of eschatology or the study of the end of the age. While the inevitable final defeat over sin awaits consummation, there is a sense in which we, West London Alliance Church, already live in the reality of that victory. We previously noted that the Lord declared that he had established his lair, his den in Jerusalem. He adopted a protective, powerful posture. And that same protective, powerful posture surrounds us today. He made it known to his people that he had set, it, set up that he had set up his dwelling place among them. Same is true today, but even in a deeper sense. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 reminds us, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? To live in victory is to recognize the constant presence of the Spirit among us. The implications of this truth are remarkable. God has established his dwelling place not just in a city or solely in a local church like ours, but he dwells among us personally and individually by his Spirit as he dwells in us. This is a spirit, we are told, of power, and love and self-control, as Paul writes in a letter to Timothy. How do we celebrate this victory now? We celebrate by living God-fearing lives that honor our Heavenly Father. We celebrate by living in the confidence of the freedom that has been won by Christ. Freedom from shame. Freedom from the fear of judgment. We celebrate as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, as we live humbly and meekly, knowing these are the lives that Christ will come back to the earth to save. Friends, Jesus is coming to take us home, to a place of peace, an indescribable Salem, And we celebrate this truth together as we sing words like, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Let's pray. Father, you are great and you are glorious. We thank you that you have adopted us into your family. Thank you that we can call each other brothers and sisters as a church family here at West London Alliance Church. That as you dwell among us by your spirit, we can know your power and we can know the freedom that has been won by Christ. We praise your glorious, majestic name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.